about uh, local politics and then we're going to talk a little bit about family law cases and uh, some CPS but um, don't forget we can take your calls give us a call at 281-447-1114 if you have any questions we'll give them a stab there try to help you out so give us a call you can also find us on Twitter at LegalSpeakMM or on Facebook Legally Speaking so uh, John I was we were talking just before we got here this afternoon about uh, a lo- little bit of local politics and the what's what we find especially interesting is the local district attorney race. So I want to jump right in and start there. Um, there was an article that came out in uh, the Intercept uh, today that basically talks about hardline law and order prosecutors across the nation are feeling and facing rejection from voters uh, you know for for their tough on crime stances because they're not open to a little more creativity a little more reform um, there's sort of a shift to sort of more progressive leadership in criminal justice so uh, I want to jump in there and get your take on you know locally what's going on and by the way this article in the intercept, highlights Harris County in our race. So, uh, you know, you can certainly look at that as well. But uh, I, I want to kind of jump in there. I know you've been following the race. Yeah, and it, it does look like uh, Devin Anderson's probably in trouble. And Mr. Trump's performance last night didn't help anything. But uh, <laughs> I think what you're really seeing is just the pendulum swing back. And I was talking with a friend about this at lunch today, and much as in the 60s, the Earl Warren Court uh, imposed all types of restrictions on law enforcement, and they had to work through those. And then in the 80s, during like the crack wars, for lack of a better term, and a big spike in violent crime, everything shifted back in law enforcement's favor. Well, now, you're to me, you have the natural swinging back toward uh, more freedom, less government interference. And you're, you're seeing that because... Uh, they, they've they kind of gone overboard. And it's not just the usual where we're going to be tough on crime. but And, you know, we've had clients that are good people. You know, as we say, good people having a bad day. Maybe they picked up a DWI. Uh, maybe there's uh, some assault case or something where it's very much an issue. But they can't believe how they're treated, and they've never been convicted of a thing. Yeah, and that's always interesting. Um, you know, we see it every day from our clients. Most of our clients have uh, never been in trouble before, uh, end up uh, unfortunately arrested or accused. And, um, you know, they just, 
it, like you said, it's kind of the way they're treated. From the police officer on the street all the way through the courthouse, they are just, they and their families are just appalled at the way that they're treated. And at that point, it's simply an accusation. They've not been convicted. There's been no trial. And yet they are treated like criminals uh, and, and like, you know, sort of the worst of the worst from the very get-go. And it, it really goes to, uh, it starts even when they first appear in courts. And it doesn't just go to the district attorney's office. It goes to certain courts, and we've been there, where the court staff treats everybody, uh, attorneys, citizens, like trash. It yeah, starts with when the bailiff comes out and, you know, you have some courts, hey, please, the judge is going to be out in a few minutes. We ask that you do this. And then there's other come out. And, you know, from uh, days working at the sheriff's office, it's almost like you're calling convicts out for recreation, the way they talk to them. Yeah, and let's kind of back up there. I know I said, uh, you know, I want to talk about the local uh, district attorney race, but let's kind of back up and help our listeners out a little bit. Um you know, when we say our clients and their families are appalled at the way they're treated, I think the general public has no idea the way people are treated in our criminal justice system here locally. So let's back up and talk about that a little bit, because uh, I think you bring up an interesting point there. It, in their encounter on the street, a citizen's encounter with a police officer, whether it be the sheriff's department, constable's office, HPD, DPS, you know, school police, you name it, uh, they're interacting with citizens on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to paint too broad of a brush here because, as you know, and we talk about, there's good and bad in every profession. So there's officers that, um, you know, do an outstanding job every day and do it with some dignity and respect. And then there are other officers that don't. What what seems to be the norm this day? I mean, I know what I see when I look at our cases and our clients. What are you seeing? I I see that uh, a, a lot, what you get is no one wants to make a decision. And the officers don't understand. They got all kinds of discretion. So they can sit there and just say, you know, this case doesn't need filed. But they have some misconception. I don't know how it arose that they have to call the DA's office. Well, I know exactly how that misconception arose. The district attorney's office has pushed for years that all officers must call them to see whether or not the DA's office wants to file charges or not. They have taken uh, what I would say is a complete 180 and about face as to exactly what you're talking about. You know, police officers are, police officers are supposed to have discretion. They might come to a home where there's a disturbance. Um, they may decide, you know what, it looks like nothing's happened here. Let's move along and, you know, quiet things down and keep going. They might come out and find small amount of marijuana. There is nothing in the law that requires an officer to make an arrest on every scene or every traffic stop. That's right. If I remember, the only time you have to make an arrest is if it's for violation of a protective order in your presence. And, right. And, you know, a famous example, a case we did, was we had a uh, pit bull chasing a six-year-old down the street in a subdivision. Uh, the soon-to-be defendant is the president of the Homeowner Association. He sees this. He walks out in the street with a shotgun, tells his wife, call 911. The um, 
owner eventually shows up and he tells the owner, you need to put that dog up before it gets shot. Uh, sheriff's office arrives and again, this thing, well, we have to call the DA. Well, they call the DA. What charges can I file? Yeah, so they decide, yes. should we, it's what can I right. file? Because so, we've come out, we're going to do something. Right. Then, and and we've heard this from prosecutors, they're afraid to tell anybody no because they don't want to get in trouble and have the police complain, especially in election year, that the DA's office is soft. But what happens then is they come up with um, disorderly conduct by reckless display of a firearm, which is Class A misdemeanor. So the guy gets arrested. He's never been arrested before, CHL holder. He gets charged with that. So he gets charged recklessly displaying a weapon. Right. When he simply, just to sort of, you know, right. tie this together, he is outside to protect a mm -hmm. child, a right. six-year-old child, who is being chased by a pit bull. Right. Now, he doesn't necessarily know whether that dog is going to attack or not, right. but he's out there in case. Right. And, uh, you know... And then he's the one that's arrested. Right. Not even the pit bull owner, but our client gets arrested for going out there to try to stop an attack. Okay. And so here's the guy again, you know, president of the Homeowner Association, never been arrested, good citizen, not, can't get a PR bond, has post cash bond. Then when he goes down there, he has to be put on pretrial supervision. No alcohol, no drugs, have to report, random urinalysis, all well, kinds of stuff. And let's back up there for a second, because I, I want our listeners to understand what's going on. When you say, you know, no no pretrial bond, but put on supervision, um, you know, PR bonds, that's personal recognizance bond. The court has the ability to release someone on basically their promise to appear in court. And should mm -hmm. they violate that promise, the judge can issue a warrant and or require them to then make a monetary deposit. Correct. But outside of that, people can post a cash bond. We know historically, and we've talked about this in the past, that Harris County in particular rarely offers PR bonds, personal recognizance bonds, mm -hmm. and instead relies on the cash bond system, and that's where a citizen either posts cash himself or pays a bondsman to post a bond for him. Now, when the when he uses the services of a bondsman, that bond is posted so money is deposited with the court or done through a surety through an insurance company. And should that person then fail to appear for court, that money is forfeitable. Mm -hmm. uh, but as long as the person shows up for court, no harm, no foul, they're free to go about their business. Um, but what we're seeing and what you're talking about here is that these people who post a cash bond are placed on what's called pretrial supervision. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think the general public has no idea what's happening. I know our clients are like, what? I just don't understand this. Why am I on probation? Yeah. Why am I coming in and taking random urinalysis? Why am I being supervised? Why do I have to call and check in constantly? Why do I have to go over to community supervision and get an offender's card? Yeah, that's yeah. that's always boggled me too. You go th these people who are placed on we call it courtesy supervision because right. there's nothing courteous about it, but uh, courteous supervision, um, and they have to show up over at the probation department and they get identification that they have to pay for. I think it's fifteen dollars, not a lot of money, but still fifteen dollars to buy an identification card that says I'm Joanne Music and I'm an offender. Right. Course, Even though you haven't been convicted. 
Right. Of course, I haven't been convicted of anything. Right. And I now have to carry around with me an, an offender identification card right. so that every time I show up in court or at the probation department to check in, they'll know who I am. My driver's license isn't good enough. My passport's not good enough. I need an offender card. Right. Okay. So now I'm going to get an offender card, and then what's going to happen? I'm going to be on supervision? Sure. Paying anywhere from 25 to $60 a month for this courtesy. So I'm going to pay 60 well, 25 to 60 $65 a month to be supervised Correct. for the courtesy of that supervision. Right. And you're going to submit the random drug analysis, and you're going to pay for it. So every and, time I come right. in and take a drug test, anytime they right. want me to, I got to come right. in and do it, and then I got to pay for that drug test. Right. And then you're also going to have to come to court at eight o'clock in the morning, even though they don't unlock the doors till eight forty-five in most of the courts, so they can let you stand out in the halls for another forty-five minutes. And uh, again, no alcohol or drugs, because, for example, if you're charged with going out there to protect a six-year-old. My God, if you had a glass of wine at Carabas for dinner, that's the end of civilization. I mean, well, see, and that's I, I can certainly understand this: no drugs, no alcohol, okay, no illegal drugs. I get that people yeah. aren't supposed to be using illegal drugs anyway. But you mean because I've been accused of, in this case, displaying a weapon because I'm trying to protect a little girl who's being chased by a dog. I now cannot even have a glass of wine with dinner. I can't have a beer while I'm watching the football game. That's right. What in the world does one have to do with the other? Well, I, I think there's this theory that uh, all evil arises from that. But, of course, I also laugh because I say, okay, you sobered America up, and guess what? Now they realize everything that's been going on, and they're mad and angry, and people are starting to get thrown <laughs> out of their elected offices. So be careful what you wish for. True. You know? True. Now, okay, so now I'm on this courtesy pretrial supervision, so I'm being supervised just like I'm on probation. Um, now, what happens when I show up for court and wait around 45 minutes or so for them yeah. just to unlock the door? Right. And then what's what happens when I get well, to Well, then you get down there, and a lot of times nothing's going to happen. Because yeah, the I state hasn't never, got the report. Never understood this. Makes no sense to me. You can walk in courtrooms across the nation. You can walk into courtrooms over here locally in the federal courthouse, and the court issues what's called a scheduling order. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montgomery County uses these quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, local jurisdictions around us use them. You get what's called a scheduling order, and it tells you, here's the date of your trial, here's the date by which you'll have A, B, and C done, which is usually like filing motions, discovery, things like that. So you get a list of dates of when stuff has to happen, uh, or, or by when something needs to happen. But over in criminal court, I've never understood that just doesn't exist. No. So instead, you're going to show up, just to get another piece of paper telling you to come back when? About six months when they're ready? No, they're going to be three, three to four weeks. Every three to four weeks. Yeah. And, and, of course, you remember when I got put in timeout. When, <laughs> uh, I told a judge that, you know, I didn't see why my client had to keep coming down every three weeks just so they could coerce a plea when he got tired of missing work, at which time... <laughs> the judge got a little upset. Yeah, I remember but that. But it was true. But it 
is true. Yeah. And, and we've talked about that for years. There are particular dockets here in Harris County in particular that they'll give you a reset, and you might come back in three to maybe six weeks on the far end, but it's every three to six weeks like clockwork. And the, the theory has been from at least what I hear from a lot of the judiciary, the theory is, well, we need them to come in and check in. We need to see um, what they're thinking, if, see if they want to work out a plea, see if they've gotten their discovery. Um, you know, I, I just it, don't understand. Did they ever figure out that if they quit tying these prosecutors up on these silly settings where nothing gets done, maybe they could do like in the outlying counties where you call or email them and you engage in these discussions and get the stuff hammered out because they're not in court every morning with a cluttered docket that's cluttered by, well, you know. Here, let me give you an example. Got a DWI, and they get arrested in May. All right, so, of course, you go down within a week. Right. And it's a blood draw. We don't have any blood results back. Because those are going to take way more than right. a week. So you go down the first week. Of course, nothing can be accomplished. You don't even know if the client's intoxicated. Well, so you now, come back in John, a month. I'm going to have to take issue with you there for a minute. Something can be accomplished. You can show up for court to be placed on courtesy supervision. Well, okay. You can show up to have your driver's license taken away from you. You can show up to have a... Uh, blow and go put on your car. That's a little breathalyzer machine on your car. Well, and, and um, we you didn't know, even touch on that. I was say, we hadn't even got to all this yeah, fun yeah. stuff. You only so have... The presumption of innocence is show up in court so we can regulate your life from this point forward. I don't care if you're guilty or not. I don't care if you've been convicted or not. You, you only are required to have an intoxilizer put on as a condition of bond if it was over 0.15, or if it's second offense or, or greater felony. And a lot whatever. of times, we don't even know if it's over right. a 0.15 right. in the beginning if we don't have the blood result right. yet. Right. So somebody that goes, for example, and cooperates fully and blows a 0.08, by statute, they're not required to have an interlock on their car. But, but I guarantee you they're going to get one. And there are quite a few courts, it doesn't matter what. Because it is the court's discretion. They're going to put it on there. So in addition to your fender card, in addition to your pretrial supervision, now you have, you know, $100, $125 installation and $79 a month monitoring fee. So probation and can download to see if you've blown. And you might even get a GPS ankle monitor. Correct. And you might even get one of those scram devices that's an alcohol detection system, kind of like the GPS ankle bracelet, but it's right. an ankle bracelet that monitors for whether or not you're sweating out alcohol. Yeah. And uh, so. Transdermal alcohol, because alcohol's secreted through the sweat, and the bracelet on your ankle will pick it up. See, now lots of stuff can happen when you take these needless court trips down there. Uh, the judge can saddle you with onerous conditions that make it too inconvenient for you to go back to work, that make it too obvious that, you know, so that you've been accused of a crime. So now your boss doesn't even want you employed anymore. They don't want you yeah. driving the company car anymore. Uh, you know, and, and these things just affect their life when nothing has happened yet. Well, okay, and, and let's go 
And I've gone way afield of where we started from. But now you opened opened up a whole other issue and talked about blood and search warrants. And... Well, hold on. Hold that thought for just a minute. Since we're opening up another issue, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump right into that. Okay. Give us your calls at 281-447-1114, and we'll be right back with you. This is a story of famous dog. For the dog that chases this tail, we'll be busy. These are happy dogs. Rhythmic dogs. Harmonic dogs. House dogs. Stick dogs. Dogs of the world unite. Dancing dogs. Yeah. Dog. Funky dogs.
are back. You are listening to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, here in the studio today with John Denholm, reminding you you can call us at 281-447-1114, and we'll take your questions on the air, see if we can't get you an answer. Just before the break, we were I started us off on the, the local DA race, which has really uh, taken a turn and has us um, has us talking about what goes on in the courthouse every day, uh, this pretrial supervision, this courtesy. Uh, and, and we just started hitting on DWI, John, and you were going to spill the beans here on um, what you like to call the dirty little secret. So let's just jump right in there and see. Well, and we've had cases where the person was arrested and, of course, they uh, refused to give a specimen, and a search warrant was obtained. And so they go down through bonding, booking, uh, the courtesy supervision, being treated like a fender. And then anywhere from six weeks, six months later, guess what? Blood comes back, and it's below 0.08. So they Which weren't intoxicated. Which means they're not intoxicated, right. not legally intoxicated, right. but yet a police officer swore they were right. and arrested yeah. them, put them in jail. They've bonded out. They've paid for supervision fees. They've probably paid for a lawyer. Mm -hmm. They've paid to be monitored every month. Mm -hmm. They have a blow-and-go on their car. Mm -hmm. They might have an ankle monitor. They're racking up hundreds of dollars a month in expenses, and you're telling me they're not guilty? Yeah, and then the case gets dismissed, and they wonder why people walk out of there bitter and confused and wondering what happened to America. And, you know, I've been told that one of the dirty little secrets is anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the search warrants for blood come back below the limit. And that's, let's talk about that for just a second. When we talk about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of the warrants come back below a .08, in order to get a warrant, an off, a blood warrant for in a DWI case, the officer first has to articulate, spell out for a judge, this is why I believe this person to be intoxicated. Correct. So that officer who's going to, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Earl in the studio, that officer who's later going to get on the stand and swear he's an expert and he knows a drunk when he sees a drunk, mm -hmm. he knows how to tell if someone's intoxicated, he's going to swear out this affidavit, I know John is intoxicated, therefore I need his blood. And you're telling me he's wrong 10 to 15% of the time? Uh, yeah, there's some guys that don't recognize intoxication. Of course, there's others that don't miss it. You know, it goes to experience. True. But, you know, one of the ways you could check this is go pull all the search warrants because, of course, search warrant returns and all that public, are public information. Now, historically, a search warrant return and the search warrant affidavit is filed by address. So if we ran a search warrant here at the station... 397 North Sam Houston Parkway East, and the media wanted to see a copy of the affidavit and then find out who was involved and maybe go back and see what happened with the case, they could just run the address. But on blood warrants, they don't do that. So instead of, you know, somebody doing a freedom of information request for all search warrants issued for 61 Reasoner or for uh, 1201 Commerce at uh, the... Uh, processing facility or something like that, they list them by officer's name. 
So you would literally have to go through the roles of all the officers in the county, and there's anywhere from 12, 15,000, to check to see how many warrants they got. So what has happened is it's exponentially more difficult to for the media and the public to find out how these things are turning out. So if the person is arrested, charged, right. they go through this whole entire process, and then we get the blood results you know, six weeks later, 12 weeks later, you know, 120 days later in some right. cases. We get that blood test back, and it says this person is not intoxicated. Does anybody go back and tell that officer, look, you were wrong. You swore he was intoxicated. Oh, no. No, there won't be anything like that. Of course not. Uh, you know, that's part of the problem. And, and, the thing and that's is, part of the transparency and accountability that this Intercept article was talking about. And I'm not trying to circle you back there just too quick, but, you know, this is what they're talking about is across the nation, people are sick of law and order, lock them up, don't presume anybody innocent. Let's, you know, yes, we well, want criminals off the street, but that doesn't mean everybody. Well, the question is, what prevents the district attorney's office on a warrant, on a blood draw, from not filing charges until the blood comes back? Yeah, absolutely nothing. As you know, it happens in counties all around right. Harris County and, every day. Right, and we see that, especially in the smaller counties, who don't want to go through all this. Well, they don't want to waste the resources. That's right. They have limited resources, so it's like, well, let's wait to make sure they're drunk. And I think there, you hit it right on the head there, John, when you say limited resources in smaller counties. Harris County acts like our resources are exponentially you know, uh, unlimited. unlimited, yeah, uh, because they don't see a case that they turn away. Every case seems to be worthy of prosecution. Even if they don't have the evidence together, they would rather tie them up in the system, tie them up in the jail. You know, we're facing massive amounts of jail overcrowding, but yet this person has to be processed through the jail before they can even start to bond out. Right. And so, you know, you're going to tie up jail resources, you're going to tie up the sheriff's department, the police department, you're going to tie up the court system, you're going to tie up courtesy pretrial division uh, for supervision, you're going to tie up the court, you're going to tie up the prosecutor's time, and you're going to tie up the entire system until you figure out whether or not there's really a case there. Yeah. And that's absurd. And then you're going to complain the system's overloaded. Well... I don't think they've yet to complain that the system's overloaded. And when I say they, I mean the district attorney's office. Yes, they will complain, oh, we're overworked and we need more staff. They're not saying we're overworked and we need to reallocate our resources. They're saying we want to keep growing. In uh, the debate, if I don't know if you saw that, between uh, Devin Anderson and Kim Ogg, uh, she, actually, she, Devin Anderson, our current district attorney, actually said they're looking to file more charges and continue to grow. And is that their purpose? Well, I've I never known a governmental agency to want to put itself out of business. They all want to grow. They all want to get bigger. They want to grow the fiefdom. They want to file more charges because we don't need them unless they're overworked. Of course, I'm still trying to digest that last commercial I saw from her where the Harris County District Attorney's Office is standing up in the woodlands with Montgomery County constables talking about game rooms. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to say, are they aware the county line is Spring Creek? 
And can't they get anybody in Harris County law enforcement to stand with her? Yeah, that is an interesting commercial. If you've seen it on TV, it's been running, uh, I think it started about a week ago or so in this big campaign push. Devin Anderson is running a uh, commercial in prime time, uh, so it's obviously costing some money, that um, has her... And it has a law enforcement officer talking about how what a great job she's done at shutting down our game rooms, which lead to um, in more and more crime. So they're talking about you know drugs and and guns and all that being involved in game rooms. And if if you're not familiar with game rooms, it could be anything from a bingo hall to a um, what do you call those little ones with the fake eight slot liners, machines, the eight, eight liners. liners. Uh, but so they're they're targeting these game rooms, but the ad they don't make it real clear. But the officer, the police officer, it's a constable who is, or a deputy constable who is talking in the commercial, and then there's another in the background standing and shaking hands with Devin Anderson next to a patrol car. None of those people are from Harris County; they're all from Montgomery County, where Devin does not work where Devin does not do anything related to game rooms. Where's Harris County law enforcement? Well, exactly. Not standing with her. I mean, um, I'd laugh. I'd run an ad with that constable saying, he may be in her commercials, but he won't vote for her. (laughs) Yeah, he certainly won't be voting for her because he can't. Right. Um, You know, and and I don't mean this to necessarily just turn into, you know, uh, a Devin bashing, but... um, you know, she certainly stepped in a few landmines lately. Well, and I say lately, throughout her entire term as district attorney. Uh, and that's what this article in The Intercept talks about. It goes on and on about each of the uh, big scandals, if you will, that Devin has found herself involved in. Uh, you know, taking this hard-nosed, win-at-all-cost approach where... Um, you know, they jailed a rape victim, and that wasn't the only one that got jailed. You know, there's more than one. Um, you know, they go into that. They go into, you know, Devin coming out on the offensive right after that story broke, giving her own video statement saying this was the only way that, that they could secure a conviction was to jail the victim. Um, you know, didn't come out and say, we're really sorry this happened. We're really, you know, we, we were at our wits end. But she said, she did it, and she'd do it again, and it was the only way they could get a conviction. But see, to me, and that's based on, you know, all my years working in a bureaucracy, including the world's largest, when I say the, the Army, um, that's symptomatic of a dysfunctional organization. Because to me, when you're putting a mentally ill sexual assault victim in jail, that's an extraordinary remedy. And to me, that would have to be bumped. It should be all the way up to make sure that, hey, we really need to do this. And if we really need to do this, we really need to make sure there's proper safeguards in place to protect her. But what happens is it's much like uh, surveillance where, you know, everybody goes, well, the NSA is listening to everything you say. That's true. They intercept every electronic communication. But when you're watching everybody, you're watching nobody. When you are so focused on not making a, a police officer mad that you won't dismiss a dog case because the prosecutor in county court has to call the officer or has to call the division chief or hire just to get rid of a dog case, 
then they are so consumed with watching the minutiae that really shouldn't concern them that they miss the big stuff, which opens an artery. It was like when Jimmy Carter was the president. He is concerned about the phone bills and the electric bill at the White House, and in the meantime, he misses that Russia invades Afghanistan. And yes. so it's the same thing. The big We're picture. so worried that, uh, you know, that this 17-year-old kid gets arrested for possession of a prohibited weapon that he bought and didn't know it was illegal. We're so worried that if we tell the policeman we're not going to take charges, that we miss that we're putting a mentally ill sexual assault victim in jail. And, you know, that goes that goes towards setting policy, setting priorities, and then trusting your subordinates to do their job. And, and we know, because we've talked to prosecutors down there who feel like they're handcuffed. Oh, yeah. Prosecutors every day talk about the, the fact that they just can't do what they want to do. Well, you know, and, and what I mean by that is they may firmly believe a particular case should be dismissed or that it should merit a particular outcome and as far as a plea bargain or whatnot. And they're simply not allowed to do that. Right. Um, they're, you know... And you bring up an interesting point because it ties into something that I spoke to uh, one of our local judges about, uh, Judge Vanessa Velasquez. I was in her court this morning, and we were just catching up on, you know, hey, how's it going? Old time's sake. Uh, weren't really discussing any type of business. Um, but we were talking about just cases in general, and she brought up a very good point that the public, when she brings juries over to, you know, to brings a jury panel over to select a jury, try a criminal case, that she's getting feedback from these folks like, what is going on down here? Why are we wasting these types of resources trying these cases? And and her her and I had this conversation about it because I think the general public does not realize the judge has very little control over what gets prosecuted and what gets tried in their own courtroom. The court can set the scheduling, but the court has no ability to just flat out dismiss a case. And it seems so, uh, it's normal for us because we're in the system every day, but anybody you talk to that's outside the system, they tell you, well, just tell the judge. Surely the judge will throw this case out. The judge has no ability to throw a case out. Um, you know, at the very first setting, they might determine there's no probable cause to go forward and might dismiss a case for lack of probable cause. But even if they do, the prosecutor has the right and the ability to go around the judge, present that case to a grand jury, get an indictment anyway, and just go right over the judge's head and prosecute again. That's right. Um, and then, But then people always think, well, look, if you just go out there and tell the judge, here's what happened— the judge will see this for what it is and dismiss this case. But I think what, what people don't realize is the judge's hands are tied. The only time they can really truly hear the evidence in the case is at a trial. That's they right. can't hear little snippets of the evidence at the first or setting or the second setting or even the 18th setting and say, gosh, why is this case here? This is ridiculous. I'm going to dismiss it. The judge doesn't have that power in Texas. And so, anyway, uh, long story to make the same point, but uh, Judge Velasquez and I were talking about this that this morning, that you know she's catching flack from jurors that come down to her courtroom to serve in jury duty that are then saying to her, 
why are we prosecuting and trying these types of cases? You know, like one example she gave is sometimes they'll, the family, or the jurors will remark, that was really just a family issue. Why is the criminal justice system involved in it? Uh, you know, why are we here trying that case? Or why are we here for such a minuscule amount of drug that you can't even see, but yet we're prosecuting it? When we know that same minuscule amount of drug is on every dollar bill out there, mm-hmm. but we don't prosecute everybody for having a dollar bill. Anyway, I, I'm well, being told here no. I've gone way too long with my story. A uh, little text coming in here, and uh, so I didn't but, mean to go way off on my story. There. But we know that that's not the only judge who's made the comment about we can't believe the cases we're trying. And so we know the judges aren't happy. We know the prosecutors feel hamstrung, that they're not being trained and they're not given uh, authority to uh, manage their dockets. And we see, like, the sexual assault victim in jail in that. I mean, the buck stops where? The buck stops with the elected prosecutor. The prosecutor is responsible for deciding what gets prosecuted, how resources are allocated, and what cases go forward to trial and which ones do not. They certainly have the ability. uh, I I posted this on Facebook this morning from a post that I had uh, blogged a little over a year ago. Just because they can doesn't mean they should. And, And the point of my post then was that just because the prosecutor can prosecute something doesn't mean they should. We see this with uh, Kim Ogg coming in saying that you know they don't, that she doesn't want to prosecute low-level amounts of marijuana. She would rather use those resources and those efforts to go after real criminals, mm-hmm. to go after violent offenders, lock them up, take those bed spaces from the jail, get the get the minor offenders out of them, and put the real criminals in them. And. Going back to Judge Velasquez uh, talking about that, when you tie up the court three or four days on a trial that should never been tried, you've got one that should have been tried where the victims are still waiting for justice that gets pushed back. And people have to understand, you know, sometimes it can take years to come to trial in felony court. Yeah, so you tie up the court with low-level cases, and like you said, your violent offender, your murderer, your rapist is being pushed off because the resources are tied up. Right. So I didn't mean to get us way off a field there, uh, but at this time we're going to take a quick break and just remind you to give us a call at 281-447-1114. Or hit us up on social media. We'll get your questions answered. We'll be right back after just a few minutes. So tell me, say what you want to do. I know I'm in love with you. Third time to turn around. I'll tell you what you can't find. Fly me, baby, find me. I'm in love with a bumblebee. Ooh, slim boy, you feel to me. So sweet to me, oh honey, yeah. You're so sweet, oh, hey. Shall I find a long way to get you? Oh, oh, oh. you're so sweet, oh, honey. All I gotta do is. 
Welcome back to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, uh, here in the studio with John Denholm today. We've been talking about, um, oh, a whole lot here and kind of what goes on in the criminal justice system and a little bit about the DA's race. And we've, um, I'm sorry, we... uh, Went a little afield here from where we started, but we were talking about these. Uh, basically, where we started was this 
article that came out in The Intercept about hardline prosecutors across the nation losing their seats as different elections come up. Uh, and we're seeing a, a trend towards that here locally as we see Kim Ogg fighting diligently against uh, the incumbent Devin Anderson and, um, you know, sort of taking a different approach to this law and order mentality. The She's She's been criticized, Devin Anderson's been criticized greatly for jailing the rape victim. What we saw was a commercial that came out. Um, we were trying to find it here for you and get it, get a little clip for you, but uh, we're having a little difficulty finding it right this second. But um, the victim's mother, we'll call her Jenny, because um, that came out in the news a while back over the summer, um, Jenny, who was jailed uh, after she had a nervous breakdown on the witness stand, she was jailed and held by the district attorney's office until she, till the trial was reset and she completed her testimony. Now, her mother is speaking out against Evan Anderson and for Kim Ogg, saying, why are we jailing rape victims? Why are we placing, re-victimizing the the girl and placing her back into the facility where her uh, attacker is. And I think we've got that clip for you, so we're going to play a little bit of it here for you. He was the victim of rape. Testifying in court, she broke down. She was hurting. She needed compassion. But she was handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. And District Attorney Devin Anderson's office had her sent to jail, the same jail as her attacker, for 27 days, and Jenny was brutalized there. I'd like to tell Devin Anderson, jail is for rapists and other violent criminals. It's no place for innocent victims like my daughter. And there you have it from Jenny's own mother. Um, I think she gives you know a compelling narrative there. We started talking about this back in, uh, I believe it was July or so, when this story first broke. Jenny, th this all occurred just before Christmas last year. So late 2015, Jenny's rapist was on trial, and she was brought in to testify against him. During her testimony, she was sort of unprepared for the shock of, of facing her rapist and having to retell that story again into in a courtroom in front of a jury, in front of a large uh, audience there in the courtroom. I was and working, she broke I was, down. I was working as a bailiff, and actually uh, Stan Schneider was a defense attorney on this back in 1981 or early 82, and we had a sexual assault victim, and she was not mentally ill. And she was so traumatized recounting it on the stand that she threw up in a courtroom. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's got to be, save for the rape itself, that's got to be one of the most traumatic events in someone's True. life, is to sit down, face that accuser, I mean, or face that, um, that molester, and recount everything that occurred. So... She's doing that and apparently has a mental breakdown. She had a history of mental illness, broke down, ran out of the courtroom saying, I can't do this, I can't do this. Now, there's some discussion about whether she went out into traffic or whatnot. Bottom line is they immediately placed her in a psychiatric facility, which was the right answer at the moment. I firmly believe that. Uh, but 10 days later, the Harris County Psychiatric Facility that she, that was housing her and helping her said, you know what, 
We've helped her all we can. She's stabilized. She's on her medication. She's okay. We're going to release her now. No one knew at the time that the prosecutor in that case was corresponding with the doctors in the hospital and keeping up with her progress and learned that she was about to be released that day. When they found out she was being released, they immediately ran to the court, got a warrant to arrest her, and hold her in custody. So her, their detectives, their investigators from the district attorney's office met Jenny as she came out of the hospital, met her right there at the front door, took her into custody, placed her in handcuffs, and carted her off to the Harris County Jail, where she remained for about 29 more days. Uh, during that time, she did go back to court to testify, but also she lived in the jail, living a horrible nightmare. She was assaulted by other inmates. She was assaulted by a guard. She was seen by psychiatric um, doctors within the jail who told her, you're crazy. You're in here because you are a rapist. She kept saying, no, I was raped. So they wrote her up as delusional and out of touch with reality, saying she doesn't even understand that she's a rapist. She's in jail because she's a rapist. And, and that's as simple Traumatized. as when you're putting in on the booking screen, either D for defendant or N for, you know. For not. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know. uh, I mean, it is. It's, and it goes back to what we said earlier. You would think something like this would have gone up the food chain. Well, you would think. And then, but surprisingly, the day this story broke, and I want to say it was Channel 13 that broke this story, uh, or Channel 2, Channel 2, that's right, that broke this story. When Channel 2 broke the story, Devin Anderson went and made her own video, posted it on YouTube, and praised her prosecutors for taking this tact and saying that they did the right thing, they had to secure a conviction. Of course, days later in the media aftermath, she backtracked a little and said, oh, well, I'm sorry that had to happen. Um, Of course, then by that time we were finding out this wasn't the only time it had happened. This wasn't the only rape victim who'd been jailed. But, you know, very long story, um, you know, and, and my heart goes out to Jenny and her family But we still have, to this day, you know, this all broke over the summer. To this day, we still have Devin Anderson defending her prosecutor's actions, her office's actions. And this is what you talk about when it starts at the top. The lead prosecutor, the elected official, sets the tone for what's allowed. That's right. She allowed a rape victim, more than one rape victim, to be jailed while awaiting trial. And that's just simply unacceptable. And, you know, this isn't, you know, that, you, that's you know, my biggest we, knock we, on Devin. And my biggest proponent for Kim Ogg is she recognizes that. And she says if she's elected, she will never allow a victim to be jailed. I mean, we understand the purpose, the purpose of a material witness bond. You get a gang killing. Yeah, some of those people you got locked down to keep them in place so they can testify. Well, yeah, but locking them down, there's lots of different ways to lock a witness down. Right, and I understand, but he's a witness, but you have a witness. I mean, I always remember the old Johnny Sutton line about when you're trying the devil, you have to go to hell to get the witnesses. Which sometimes happens, but this poor girl was brought to hell 
not me, gone to get her. You would think this is an extraordinary circumstance. So either A, she knew and approved, or B, she doesn't know what's going on, but either are not acceptable. Well, as I say, she, I, think, I think it's become clear since then, one, she did not necessarily know it was happening, but then two, when she found out it happened, she applauded it and approved it and said, well, we won't try to, we'll try not to ever do it again, but we did it and it was the right thing to do. Well, she came out with a statement attacking the victim's mother for making the commercial. Yeah, I was going to say, and just after this commercial comes out, Devin Anderson comes out attacking Jenny's mom. Right. For defending her daughter. And we both know from trying jury cases, you better be careful when you beat up on mom. Yeah, you definitely have to be careful when you beat up on mom. Uh, you know, and it just seems she just, for whatever reason, she cannot help herself. She's digging that hole deeper and deeper. And what we'll see, maybe, is that her, you know, hardcore Republican constituents will come out and vote for her. But I think what what we're seeing is something akin to what The Intercept is talking about, is that the tide is turning across the nation. And prosecutors who take these win-at-all-cost, absolute law-and-order, lock-everyone-up mentality, they're getting swept out of office. Right. Well, Maybe, maybe she can ride the Donald's coattails. <laughs> you wanted to throw that in. You've been waiting on that one. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. That wraps up our hour with Legally Speaking with Music and Music. Again, I'm Joanne Music, uh, your host here in the studio with John Denholm today. And uh, we're here every week on um, Thursdays from 2 to 3 p.m. You can also catch us on podcast afterwards or on social media. We're on all the sites, YouTube, uh, we're on uh, Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Hit us up, get in touch with us, and give us a call next week if you have a question. 281 447 one 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 four and again thanks for joining us for legally speaking with music and music the views and opinions expressed on kjoz talk programs are solely those of the individual host